Selah. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. You went through fire and through water but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay my vow, pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. Selah. Come and hear. All you who fear God, And I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. As we come to Psalm 66, as I mentioned, it's a joyful psalm it's a psalm of praise and yet even in this psalm of praise there's an undercurrent of pain it's a psalm of praise that comes out of a painful experience a difficult time but which looks forward to a bright future you see that as you work your way through this psalm as the psalmist which we do not know who it is it does not tell us who exactly the psalmist is but whoever he is, he, he, he starts by praising God. And he praises him and, and, and he gets to the point where he, he looks at the difficult situation from which he has come. And yet God has heard his prayer. Another interesting note about this psalm is halfway through it switches. At verse 13 it switches from being communal. So in the first several verses, first 12 verses, it's what God has done. The picture is on the community And then from 13 to 20, the end of the psalm shifts to personal. It funnels down to what God has done for the community to look what God has done for me. So as you work your way through this, it can be divided into four sections. First four verses, a guide to worship. Then verses 5 to 7, an invitation to worship. Verses 8 to 12, a reason to worship. And then verses 13 to 20, a personal testimony in worship. First thing you see in the first four verses is a guide to worship. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Again, just like the Psalms leading up to this, Psalm 65 specifically, it addresses all the earth. And so even throughout this psalm, as the psalmist recounts God's sovereign goodness to Israel... Specifically, in the Red Sea and the Jordan River, as he parts it, as he brings them in, even as he focuses on that, the psalmist also recognizes God's sovereignty over the whole earth. And he invites all the earth, all peoples, join in this song. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise 
glorious. These first two verses, the psalmist is starting by telling the congregation what to do. Do this, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. That's the focus of this psalm. It's a joyful shout to God. It's a response to all that God has done. And yet notice that even as a response, it's an orderly response. Sing out the honor of his name. It's the focus of worship. What God has done. How? By making his praise glorious. That line implies purpose. It implies effort. There's not chaos here. He doesn't just say, make, make, worship the Lord in any way you want. Just, I don't care, just do it. No, there's order. Make it glorious. Put effort into it. This is a response to God, but it's an, it's an orderly response, a purposeful response. If you think of the opposite, a mindless response. I know myself, a lot of times when I'm tempted to respond to something in anger, that is not a mindful response. That's a mindless response. I just feel overcome. I just, I need to throw something. I need to hit something. I just, you know, I'm, I'm overcome. My, my anger is controlling me. It's out of control. It's not mindful. It's not purposeful. It's just chaos. But that's not what's in view here. This worshiper is overcome by who God is, by all that he has done, by the honor of his name. And yet his worship is not mindless, it is mindful. Make his praise glorious. Effort, purpose. Well, what does this look like? How do I do this? Well, that's what verses 3 to 4 then. Verses 1 to 2, do this. Verses 3 to 4, how do I do this? Well, like this, say this to God. He gives kind of an example here. Leads the congregation to join me in worship by doing it this way. Say this to God with me. How awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praise to your name. What is the pattern of this praise? That How should we respond? Well, there's, there is a pattern to this praise. He starts first with what has God done? Look at these awesome works that God has done. Praise him for his awesome works. Start with what he has done. Then move to how God has done it. God has done these awesome works. Why? How? Through the greatness of your power. God, look at these great things that you have done. And as I look at these great things that you have done, they, they point to the greatness and the power of who you are. It gives evidence of who you are and what you have done. So the pattern of this praise, it starts by, well, what has God done? He's done awesome works. How has God done it? Through his power. Well, well, who can stop God? No one. Your enemies shall submit themselves to you. As they see these awesome works and the greatness of his power, notice it doesn't even say that they will be overcome. It just says they will submit. They will see this awesome power of God and they will lay down their weapons and they will submit to God. There is no one that can stand up to this God. There is no one who can stop him. So as I see what God has done, and as I behold his power, how he has done this, and I see that there is no one like this God, no one who can stand up to him, no one who can stop him, well, how shall I respond then to what God has done? Well, that's verse 4. 
This is how you respond. All the world shall, world shall, or earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. So when you start in these first four verses, it's a guide to worship. This is how you do it. This is what you say. What has God done? How has God done it? Who can stand against our God? No one. And so how shall we respond? We shall join all the earth in worshiping this God. We shall sing praises to him. Again, all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. There we have both an acknowledgement, once again, of God's sovereign rule over all the earth. And yet at the same time, in that, there is a hint of an expression of the hope in God's future kingdom. Yes, there's a sense in which all the earth is the Lord's and he rules and he reigns. And yet there's a very real sense in which he will come and he will rule and he will reign. And we look forward to that. And that's what David is, or David, I'm used to saying David when you're talking about a psalm. The psalmist, whoever he may be, could be David, whoever he may be, that's what he's saying here. Your God is in control and your God will come and he will rule and he will reign. And so worship him. Selah. Pause and meditate on those truths. After giving this guide to worship to start, he moves on then to an invitation to worship. Notice the first word there, come. Come and see the works of God. See God's specific works. The first four verses are very broad. How awesome are your works? Very broad, all these works. Now we zoom in. This is an invitation to worship. Look specifically at what God has done. Come and see the specific works of God. Yes, he's done great works, but what are these great works? Let's zoom in. Let's see. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. Verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. Obviously, that refers to the Red Sea. Crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus 14. I had a professor in... Uh, Bob Jones, and he phrased it this way. He said, Exodus 14, the Red Sea, is the central point in the Old Testament. And what he meant by that is in the Old Testament, after that point, that is the one thing that they keep referring back to. They keep looking back to. As they look forward to what God will do, you've said that you will, that you will accomplish this, that you will fulfill your promises. You said that there will be a seed to come to crush the serpent's head, and we're longing for that. And how do we know that you will do that? Because look what he did back there in Exodus. It's the one point that they return to time and time again. It is the ultimate expression of God's power and deliverance in the Old Testament. And here in Psalm 66, this is what they look back to. Look back to that ultimate expression, to what God did as he parted that sea, as he brought us across on dry land, as he defeated the armies of Pharaoh. That is an awesome work of our God. Come and see it. And it didn't stop there. He goes on to Joshua 3 and the Jordan River. They went through the river on foot. Again, and Joshua 3 as he separates it and they, they go through to take possession of the promised land that God has given them. Again, it's an expression of God's power and deliverance. He promised us that land. 
And he didn't just lead us out into the Red Sea after that great work and abandon us. He stayed with us through 40 years, even through our failings. And he took us through the, Red, through the Jordan River to fulfill his promises to us, despite our failures. Look at these awesome works that God has done. There we will rejoice in him. Rejoice in his provision. Who rejoice in these awesome things that he has done. Verse 7 goes on. He rules by his power forevermore, forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. It's interesting when you look at the juxtaposition here in verse 6 and 7 of his work in the water, turning the sea into dry land, separating the river as they walk through, and now he turns his attention to the nations. As he sees the nations, he observes, he is in control of them. As you look back to Psalm 65, verse 7, the psalmist here combines these two ideas of the nations and the waters. You who stills the noises of the seas, the noise of the waves, and the tumult of the peoples. He is a God who is in control of nature. He's a creating God, a sustaining God. He's in complete control of nature. He rules the oceans, the waves, do what he says. And yet at the same time, the nations do what he says. As he rules the waters, so he rules the, ocean, the, 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 the nations. He observes the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Again, it goes back to the idea your enemies shall submit themselves to you as they see the awesome works of God. They can do nothing. So verses 1 to 4, a guide to worship. Verses 5 to 7, an invitation to worship. Come and see these awesome works that this God has done. Come and look. Come and behold. Verse 8 to 12 then, a reason to worship. Oh, bless our God, you peoples. Bless our God. Now that, that, that you've seen that I've invited you to come and to see and to look and to meditate on what God has done, now respond. Bless our God, you peoples. Make the voice of his praise to be heard. Do not hold back. Do not be silent. W. Graham Scroge wrote this. He said, a full heart will not allow for locked lips. Once you see what God has done, you cannot hold it to yourself. It must burst forth in praise to God. Bless our God, you people, and make, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. Let it be heard. Who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. Our breath is in his hand. What a thought that is. That every breath you take comes from God. That at this moment, as your heart is beating, every beat is a gift from God. He holds your life in his hands, and at any moment he can snuff it out. And yet he keeps our soul among the living. 
And that verse is all the more powerful when you then go into verses 10 to 12, which is a remarkable verses. You would think at this point that the psalmist would say, and you have blessed me. Look at this harvest that the Lord has given me. Look at the wealth that he has blessed me in. Look at my vineyard, how it overflows. Look at the friends who surround me. Look what God has done for me. And yet that's not what the, where, where the psalmist goes in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12. Instead, he turns his focus to suffering. And he praises the Lord for his sovereignty even in suffering. He recognizes that even in suffering, it is God who holds his breath. His God who keeps our soul among the living, who does not allow our feet to be moved. Verse 10, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. As it is burned in these heat and the dross is burned away. It is not an easy or a fun process. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. That's a picture that takes us directly back to Egypt. So we think about the Israelites as they're making these bricks and carrying this work, this heavy burden on their backs. God led them there. God was with them even there, even in that suffering You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. These verses, if you just pull these verses out, verses 10, 11, and 12, they don't seem to fit in this psalm. Hold hold on. Just a second ago, you were praising God for how great he is, for his power, for how he rules over the oceans and over the, the, the nations. You're inviting us to bless God because of all that he has done and all that he is. And yet now you say, because you took us through fire and through water and people rode over our heads and and there was affliction on our backs and you brought us into the net and you've refined us as silver, you have tested us. These aren't things to praise God for. Is he really a good God if he has done these things? And yet the the psalmist responds with a resounding, yes, he is good. He is good even in the midst of verses 10, 11, and 12. Even when I don't understand it, he is good. And you see that at the end of verse 12 as he responds, but... As we were tested, as we were refined, as we were drawn into the net, as we were afflicted, as men rode over our heads, as we went through fire and through water, but through all of that, you brought us out to rich fulfillment. All along the way, God knew what he was doing. And you see that as you look back at the Old Testament, do you not? There's some that as they try to place this psalm, who wrote it, where is it written? Some say David. Some some place it as late as the Maccabees. Some put it with Nehemiah and the return from captivity. And it fits in any of those. 
And as you look back through the, the Old Testament, every single one of the situations, it is God who led them into Egypt, and it is God who led them out. It is God who sent them into captivity, and it is God who led them out. It is God who raised up men like Daniel, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, and Esther. It is God who raised up men like Moses. And every time as his people come out, they are all the better for it. They come out of Egypt into a land full, rich, overflowing with milk and honey. They come out of captivity to broken down cities, and the king pays to restore it. Through all of this, you brought us out to rich fulfillment. All along, God knows what he is doing. And it's at this point that it then turns personal. It's as if the, the psalmist is sitting there and he's, he's, he's thinking about all these great things that God has done through history. Through the exodus, as he led them in, as he cared for them through the desert, as he brought them through the Jordan into Israel. As he emptied the cities before them and, 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 sent, and, and the armies went forth and, and had victory and they took over the land. As God provided all along and he comes to this point and he thinks, God's provided for me. God is great. This isn't just something I've heard. It's not just something I've read about. This is something I've seen. He starts in verse 13. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. It's the second psalm in a row where it's mentioned vows the idea is in verses 10 11 and 12 as the psalmist is going through these difficult times he's coming through this trial whatever it may be he makes vows to God Lord keep me faithful give me strength I will do this for you I will, I will give this burnt offering And as he comes out there and as God provides and delivers him, I will keep my vows. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. The promises that I made in 10, 11, and 12, I will keep as I come out of there. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals. These are the best. Not just whatever you can get, throw out there. Fat animals, the best, with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. I will give to you my best. I will do what I have said. I will be faithful, for you are faithful. keeps going. Verse 16. Still more personal. Come and hear all you who fear God. Come and hear. He said come and see. Now he says come and hear. And I will declare to you what he has done for my soul. Again it's moving very personal. From God's great deeds and history to God's personal work in me. Let me tell you. Not just what my God has done in history, what my God has done in me. 
this is my testimony. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's a verse you've probably heard before. The idea of to regard iniquity, it's to aim at sin or cherish sin. If I am holding on to sin in my heart, it's, it's, it's almost the idea of trying to get the best of both worlds. I have this, this sin that, you know, it's, I, I like this. It's difficult. I don't want to give that up, but I, I want, I, you know, I, I do want what you want, Lord. I'm willing to do this, but just, you know, leave that alone. That's regarding iniquity in your heart. It's the idea that we see in Psalm 32, verses 3 to 4, as David is describing how he was. He tried to hide his sin until he came to the point where he humbled himself before the Lord. I invite you to go and read Psalm 32. It's language you're probably very familiar with in your own life and heart. That feeling. That's the idea here, trying to, to hide, to hold on to your sin. Lord won't, re- won't hear you. What you're saying in that moment is, I care more about this than I care about you. The Lord won't listen to a man like that. Verse 19, but certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Note that last line, nor his mercy from me. The psalmist's joy and confidence. There's a lot of confidence in these verses. He has heard me. He will attend. He has attended. He has not turned away my prayer. Nor his mercy from me. The psalmist's joy and confidence comes not from a proud heart where he thinks that he deserves to be heard, or where he demands an audience with God. It's not, look, I've gotten all the sin out of my life. God will listen to me. He has to listen to me. I deserve for him to hear me. That's not the attitude of the psalmist. Not a proud heart that feels like he deserves or demands an audience with God. It's a humble heart that recognizes the mercy of God. He has not withheld his mercy from me. I need his mercy. And he has heard my prayer because he is merciful. Because I am sinful. For God is merciful. And really, that's the amazing truth of this psalm. The amazing truth of Psalm 66 is that this powerful God who does these amazing works in history that he knows and hears and cares for this individual psalmist. That powerful, great, awesome God. He knows, he hears, and he cares for you and for me. He is great and powerful. And yet praise the Lord that he is also merciful. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. I don't normally close our Wednesday nights this way. But I felt like 